0: i work in a high school in vermont not that my location matters because it's kind of an issue that pops up all over the place but um there's just been a a fear around vaping products despite the trends in the opposite direction of people's persuasion it seems um i remember just before the pandemic that was what everybody was talking about in the school how can we you know this vaping is just such an epidemic people are going to become addicted quickly it seems like more and more people are vaping more and more often and once people get hooked on things like nicotine especially vape products that are uh, that have flavors in them and you know kids don't know any better and they're going to be forever hooked so what are we going to do it's huge um and then I remember, was it just before the pandemic happened? Was it in the midst of it? I can't remember. But there was a, you know, there was an article and there was news that was going around about people using vaping products, ostensibly using vaping products, and dying of this mysterious illness from these mysterious chemicals and vapes. And it turns out that it was what was happening was there were aftermarket cartridges um, that were being inserted to uh, THC kind of vaping vape devices that had what was it, vitamin E oil or other kinds of concentrates in them. In other words, the the thing that people were concerned about in that mass media wave wasn't vaping products in earnest being sold off the shelves, but a sort of a black market, if you will, um, roundabout way of getting THC and vaping products. Um, now, with all of that is coming a, a new push from the FDA, hoping to ban specifically jewel products, um, Jewel being clearly the most favorable vaping product of them all. And so the people who are using them often are, are teens and adolescents, but at the same time, a lot of people who are using them are adults who once smoked and no longer do or smoke and are using them as a cessation tool. Anyway, right now, the headlines that people are probably familiar with are that let's just make it simple let's just say the fda wants to ban vaping products and specifically jewel products let's stop there for a minute let me get your thoughts on this initially
1: well let's let's i just want to conceptualize where we're at in the world um Vaping is presented as a strong harm reduction technique by people we know. Um, Some of the leading people in harm reduction because they say it's a less dangerous version. It's not damaging like a tobacco product. And for many people, it's a route out of smoking and has a benefit that way. You're in a school environment where people are focusing on, well, does it lure people into using a nicotine product? And of course they emphasize the addiction part of the equation. It's sort of when addiction is thrown into the mix, the whole thing (laughs) goes up in flames. And leaving out the addiction side of it, how how do you feel about vaping yourself as a habit among high school kids
0: i see it as a habit among others that high school kids have you know one of the things that um first of all what's interesting is that just a data conception is that um as more people more high school age kids are vaping uh, many many fewer of them are using combustible tobacco products uh, the idea that vaping is considered a tobacco product is a sort of a sleight of hand in general. But you're asking, all right, well, how do I see it as a habit among kids? Well, high school kids do dumb things and uh, get sucked into dumb habits. I mean, habits that d- kind of go against what they might want to do or be as a person. People in high school are trying to conceptualize a self-identity, trying to fit in with a group, find a sense of belonging, and they ebb and flow out of different kinds of habits, trying on different hats. It's almost like, um, you know, when a two, three, four year old kid is playing, what you hope they're doing is some sort of dramatic play and literally trying on different hats and, and clothes and wear and trying out different scenarios. High school kids are doing the same thing. It's a different state of development, but they're trying on different. So the idea, you know, one metric people use to say, well, how many people are vaping is how many people have tried it in the last 30 days. And uh, that's, it gets you kind of close to something like how many people are doing something regularly, except that, you know, in drug, st- in drug surveys or any kind of thing that high schoolers do, uh, somebody trying something in the last 30 days, that could mean anything. I mean, that could mean you can imagine, like I can just, if I want to paint the picture of some sort of an archetype, I can imagine somebody at a party who's not really interested in the party, who's a rule follower and you know, friends are doing it. And this is a guy who seems is thinks that there's a narrative about him or her as a stick in the mud. So he tries it one time, but it's not something he's interested in pursuing long-term. Or I can imagine somebody who uh, is bored in school and feels trapped in school. And they're one of the kids that I've known who vapes in the bathroom to, to get out. of It's something to do while you're getting out of class. And of course, that's there could be habit forming. There are rituals associated with something like vaping or smoking or anything that um, you could get into sort of a cycle and you could find yourself in a place that is difficult to get out, even after you learn about some you know, negative health effect. But I think you have to kind of take that all together. And when you do, I don't think there's anything alarming about something like vaping more than anything else that we could be worried about among high schoolers. <clears throat>
1: The, the dichotomy is between, well, if people choose to do something and are they addicted and they can't escape it. And one thing you and I, and many harm reduction people are fighting against is the idea that addiction is um, tattooed in your brain. Mm-hmm. You'll never escape it. That's huge. And you and I take a more flexible view of it. Where you see somebody engaging in even the most addictive behaviors, like with heroin, as being very contingent on who they are and where they are at a point in life. And you've also pointed out, well, okay, things with even without the high, hardcore model of addiction oh, you've tried heroin and now you'll never be able to escape it. People can. Lapse into a kind of a habitual set of behavior. And I think you have the ability of dealing, people admire your ability to deal with high school kids. And I think this is gonna come up, it has come up and will come up in many of our discussions because you have a positive outlook on their potential and their goals. At the same time that you're relatively laissez faire about anything that's taking place at a given moment, which allows them to relax a little and perhaps to more thoroughly evaluate what it is they're doing.
0: Is mm-hmm. that, is that, re- that's really well put. In my frame of uh, reference, you know, I work, I guess, in my milieu, it are people who say, well, they make this correlation that, um, well a lot of kids are vaping and then there's this heightened kind of hysteria that well nicotine's probably luring them into this product and at the same time kids are being annoying you know like kids are not in class kids are vaping kids are um you know leaving the school grounds so that they can vape kids are buying these vaping products before they're of age to do it so not only are they being lured in as their this narrative may go by nicotine the nicotine and this alluring thing about vaping is causing them to skip classes. It's causing them to be annoying. It's causing them to be like destructive teenagers. And, you know, you could look at it a different way. You could say what the hell is going on with us and what we're doing that makes kids so uninterested in everything about our system, about our community. Um, You could leave vaping aside before there was vaping. There was everything else. And you always want to scapegoat because that's easier. But the real, the broad, the more fundamental question, radical, maybe you'd say, is what is it about the frame that we're framework that we're providing for kids that make them so resistant to it, that is actually not building any sort of sense of community and sort of does um, make them vulnerable to taking risks that they might not otherwise if they were engaged.
1: Which is another way of rephrasing the whole addiction issue. The issue isn't what are people escaping into and that is capturing them? It's what are they uh, running from or not being finding appealing? And that refracts itself through the entire addiction field like deaths of despair is people are dying at earlier ages. They're people with the least engagement in the world. They have high school degrees unless they aren't married. They are, they may be younger, but that extends through middle age. They're often isolated single men without a kind of career. And so the remedy for that is what? You know, eliminate painkillers or and find some way to attach to them. And you're not afraid to confront that issue. I always make the joke, you're eminently employable. Mm. Because in a high school setting, it's almost like they say, oh, let that person talk to Zach. It's sort of somebody that seems to be intractable, that isn't being able to be reached. You don't find that contradiction in dealing with them. You don't, you're not put off by it or afraid of it or at a loss for dealing with it.
0: No, because at a practical level, I mean, what else are you supposed to do? Now, this is where you're, um, I'm glad you kind of broaden the scope a little bit, because of course, the idea what we've been talking about here week to week is that we have addiction all wrong. And some might say, well, isn't that the kind of philosophy that people talk about, but it doesn't really matter in life? Like, who cares what addiction is, what it isn't? Well, this is where it matters. You know, the, the narrative that you know one narrative that sweeps the country or world that western world that could keep people safe versus harm them that matters a lot so there's a big difference between our conceptualization which is that actually no nicotine there's nothing about a drug that's inherently addictive you know there's not just because nicotine is in a thing doesn't make the thing addictive it's the ritual around it it's what relief it gives a person it's what's going on in the the in their lives that, um, that, that may draw them into something like an escape. Well, that all matters, but the drug itself doesn't.
1: And that's why you and I are always going to be on the side of vaping because everything that, everything that scapegoats a drug, that starts back in primordial history, you know, various drugs have been scapegoated as the source of all evil, including alcohol, and only more recently opioids. In the, it was the 20th century for opioids. In the 19th century, alcohol was the, the demon drug. And drug scourges always lead us in the wrong direction.
0: Well, here's an example. Well, what are we gonna do about this? I have uh, actually our uh, colleague Jacob Solom writes about this constantly, this issue constantly in reason. And I just happened upon one of his articles that I have up here, and it, uh, he says this well. So there's um, one thing that the FDA would like to do is ban flavors. The idea being that flavors are enticing young people. Like, it's like, well, it's no different than Skittles on a shelf, which is, and, and you know, they say, uh, by the way, they say the same thing, and we'll get into cigarettes also, but um, about menthol cigarettes. And they say that they're especially alluring to black Americans because they favor them more. And It's almost like what a reverse, that's just a patronizing kind of a thing to say about a subset of the population. And I think that same is true for kids. Although the agency views non-tobacco flavors dangerously enticing to teenagers, surveys indicate that the vast majority of former smokers who vape favor them. A 2019 analysis of data from the Population Assessment Tobacco and Health Study found three quarters of past month adult vapors, 93% of whom were current or former smokers, preferred flavors other than tobacco. Former smokers who had completely switched to an e-cigarette were especially likely to have transitioned from a tobacco-flavored product to a non-tobacco-flavored product. So what are we going to do? In other words, At the same time as we're worried about what about the kids narrative always kind of wins. What about people who are at the highest risk immediately of being harmed by tobacco products who have used vaping as a cessation tool, which, by the way, is the only really that that has any marginal effect on cessation uh, that we've tried. Um, And they prefer flavored products and they prefer vaping as a cessation tool over things like nicotine gum and things like that. What are we, what are we doing to them by saying now these th- flavors aren't allowed or these things aren't allowed?
1: And, and we're, we're all getting, it's all fundamentally foundationed on the idea that you're being lured into a nicotine trap. And nicotine is the latest drug scourge that people can never choose among or escape. Mm-hmm. It's all driven, we've, the modern era, the brain disease era, like the AA era, is the substance drives everything. Um, the, chem, the addictive chemical substance. And what we're saying is, well, look at all the accoutrements, both in terms of the person and their lives and in terms of the characteristics of what it is that is they're using. And so let's switch to a related topic. Uh, there was a big uh, op-ed piece in the New York times. I, the person was a historian mm-hmm. and she says, thank God the FDA is lowering the level of nicotine so that people will smoke and with less likelihood of being addicted. And it pains me, especially when historians talk that way, because historians should be the people who are most acutely aware of the variability in how opiates are perceived and used. In the 19th century, opiates were nothing special. People gave laudanum to babies, which is an opiate tincture. they're envisioning this. They they have a specific model, the woman's historian, and she's accepting this view of life. Um, people are addicted to nicotine. The more nicotine is contained in something, the more addicted they are to it. The more habituated they are to that level of nicotine, if you lower the level of nicotine, supposedly what would happen is that you would smoke more to maintain the same level of nicotine, it's a nicotine maintenance model. But in fact, uh, a person now at Rutgers, Howard Leventhal did an elaborate review of studies and they found out that the claim that lowering or raising the level of nicotine impacted how much people smoked was it inexact doesn't describe it the correlations like you know 10 to 15 percent
0: i'm glad that's an empirical question so i'm glad that this was done that data was done it's just you could get, use good old logical positivism to arrive at that conclusion um you know i re- remember i mean still cigarettes and alcohol are taxed and there's a high tax burden in some states with an effort to thwart or to minimize the um the use of those things and the places where the high, the highest tax burden are where people smoke most, and switch to, you know, more harmful types of cigarettes or longer or more harsh types of cigarettes.
1: And it all stems from a mechanistic view of it. You got going back to your point. Our theories of addiction are killing us. They're dangerous. The view that the substance itself is driving things like. Deaths of despair, the United States is virtually at the lowest level. The United States is the only uh, wealthy nation compared to 16 others where lifespan is declining. Um, In the Global Burden of Disease Study, which used intricate economic analyses, the United States is second overall in disability and death years and death years lost death and disability from drugs out of 196 nations. It's not, people propose these demonizing models of drugs, supposedly, because they're gonna encourage people to stay away from the drugs. In fact, it has a disempowering effect of making people unable to exercise the amount of judgment that they're capable of exercising. Mm -hmm. And so people can cut back on smoking. We How do we know that? Because the smoking isn't what's now what smoking used to be. So to be a smoking addict you used to have to smoke, the average smoking addict smoked a pack of cigarettes a day. The average smoker now only smokes six or seven cigarettes a day because it's tough to smoke anymore. And so, that fundamental reality, which is the greatest, the greatest reduction in a massive area of addiction in the history of the universe has occurred between the Surgeon General's report and the 70 years after that, in terms of smoking, where a mass of the population ceased smoking or cut back their smoking dramatically. And it's sort of, the whole theory of nicotine addiction was, well, that's impossible. And in fact, the public health gains from not smoking are based on the reality of the fact that if you make it harder for people to smoke, they have to isolate themselves, they have to leave a group, they incur disapproval, you're going to get a massive reduction in smoking. And it happened. The problem remains then, it's getting back to your high school, who still smokes? So, uh, a quiz question that you can fool even the most educated pro- smoking is more expensive than it used to be. Who smokes more? Rich people or poor people?
0: Is well, that- poor people. By how, far. How I does mean that work. They do how it in place work? of they do it in place of so many things. I mean, uh, you could just have a conversation with somebody with few means and discover the answer. Sometimes I, I've talked to people who have around here, even who are low income and they smoke and I've had conversations with them and they have the metacognition to say, sometimes I smoke and it's like a replacement for food when I'm hungry. So if you think about the cognitive load that somebody low income has and, uh, the reasons why smoking might be appealing, well, that alone would create you know, a scenario where they smoke more. Um, they don't have the means to buy food, but they'll buy cigarettes. Oh man, that's crazy! It must be the nicotine hooking them. But if you if you really think about it, the they don't have to function in as as uh, aristocratic a society as somebody wealthy might. They don't have the same uh, social uh, uh, deterrence as somebody in a wealthy community might, and they certainly I mean, don't yeah, have and there's the means.
1: Options either.
0: That's right. Exactly. You can go to so, or but, a
1: good restaurant, or, and the whole discussion that we're having and this is just a preliminary discussion, is one that's predicated on not viewing the nicotine as the totally driving force. It's a matter of seeing all the contingencies and the multi-factors that are engaged in addiction. And so the fact that the neuro model of the brain disease is now taught in schools, teaches people a way of thinking about addiction and substance negative substance use, which is wrong and which is contradicts our ability to understand and analyze people's behavior and to help them. Addiction, tobacco addiction included, is the area in the world where the more knowledge that we've developed, the worse able we've become to deal with the problem. The United States of America's National Institute on Drug Abuse has been spending a billion dollars and more a year on neuroscientific research based on the Nora Volko model. model. Um, it's all about the dopamine. Addiction is driven by people's need to maintain that chemical balance. She published something called Addiction is a Disease of the Free Will. Mm. Nora Volko, is a progenitor and the biggest backer of a movement, which has driven the United States to the lowest level of health around drug use, the highest level of disability and addiction. And she's still driving her way forward with the support of supposedly scientific institutions and publications like Nature Magazine. Is that the... the more you know about addiction and it's still being taught this way in schools and being proposed this way by Nora Volko leading a pack of people by public health specialists, the less likely you're able to understand reality, to be helpful and to control your own behavior. What a bizarre set of scientific circumstances.
0: Well, there, And then there's the, there's the Nora Volko 2.0 view that, yeah, it's all about dopamine. And um, you have to think about people's social, you know, life circumstances. I'm talking to a guy that you said you knew you had talked to a while ago named Alfie Cohen uh, pretty soon. And one of the things that that he said, one of the first readings I saw of his was a little article that I read, and I maybe it was a college course that really resonated with me, because it's how I thought about things. He was saying, you know, people, every year schools come up with these kind of policies or rules or ways to get kids, students to comply. Every, you could wake up any educator in the middle of the night and say, what's the purpose of schools? And they, they would wake up as well, lifelong learning. And, and then a secondary would be, why are you in my room? Uh, and then, but at the same time as they know that, well, it's all about lifelong learning. It's all about helping people grow into themselves. and They still want to know, how can we get kids to comply with the way that we see that the world should be? And that still happens in schools, and that still happens in the addiction realm. There's, in other words,
1: Alfie's never actually worked in schools, and you actually work in schools. Is that an accurate description?
0: Yeah, I do feel like if I'm going to talk about it, I should pay my dues and some respect on the on the ground. But but what I'm saying is, Alfie or no Alfie, is just the concept remains that. We can be a society who's aware that an important thing to do is help people understand their existence so that they have a place in the world. And at the same time, I've even heard people say this with vaping, actually, you could say something like, shouldn't we be thinking about, you know, why people are avoiding life and turning to this thing rather than should get this thing out of here? And people will say something like, yes, of course that. So they know it. But we should go for the low hanging fruit. We can get rid of nicotine products for now. And it's sort of like saying, uh, you know, let's pick the low hanging fruit from the apple tree while we let it rot and die. (laughs) And so that's the point.
1: is one of the best examples of that. The National Academy of Sciences pointed out that our lifespan is declining. It's primarily among high school educated people and lesser. That's good to know. It's good to know it's not the existence of drugs. Now, what do you do? Mm. And America really has no answer to that question. And part of it is we don't devote any thought to it. In this case, addiction is an excuse for not dealing with it. But why the United States is doing so poorly is because it actually exacerbates our inability to deal with it by refocusing our attention on opioids instead of those intractable problems, it's an excuse for not dealing with them. And so you're, you know, you're where the rubber meets the road. Uh, you know, I, I, my joke is always, well, you'll never be unemployed. Mm. Uh, the fact that you can deal with people in that nexus. And the question is, to what extent can we expand those insights in a broader way to have some kind of societal impact. You know, you're working in a school system in Vermont, isn't going to change, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Even though you're working that same terrain.